It could be 60 degrees. I mean, 60 degrees means you're balancing on one edge on your heels or your toes, and you will flip up and over. Uh, you, you cannot stop yourself. It's so steep that if you put your hand to your right or left, depending how you're going down, your hand will crash into the side of the mountain. That's how steep it is. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, for all the folks in the U.S. today, it is Memorial Day, so happy Memorial Day. Hope you're doing something worthwhile, and thank you for listening today. For a lot of us, it's a day off, so it can be tough to keep that routine of the podcast we listen to, so I appreciate you listening. Uh, today we're talking to Jeremy Evans. He's an author that uh, you know loves to snowboard, lives out near Tahoe, and just came across this story quite a few years ago about this young French snowboarder, Marco Sifredi. And Marco is incredible. Marco actually descended uh, Mount Everest on a snowboard. First person to ever do it. Almost went, I mean, it, it got some press, but almost went unnoticed and decided to do again and do it again the next year through a different route and ultimately... Uh, he was never seen again. So Jeremy went on this absolute uh, just rabbit hole of research, of visiting uh, where where Marco grew up in, in Chamonix, France. Um, you know, going to, you know, I don't, I don't think he went to Everest, but researching all these areas and understanding like what happened to him, wh- what made him so unique. And he just began to really uh, just enjoy the character of who Marco was. Um, and decided to write a book about it. It's pretty incredible. And so we're going to be listening to to that story today, how he got to this point, um, a lot about Marco, who, what he was like, um, how he even tried to do something like this, what led him to do this, and what they think happened to him uh, ultimately. So if you'd like to check out his book, which is called See You Tomorrow, The Disappearance of Snowboarder Marco Sofredi on Everest, uh, link is in our show notes. You can find it pretty much anywhere you get books. And also there is a book trailer. So think of a movie trailer just for a book and it's animated and all that. You can also find that in our show notes. Definitely appreciate it if you check both of those links out. Uh, and also before we get started, want to shout out, you know, our, our, a tried and true partner of ours, rerouted.co. I did an adventure this weekend. Uh, a triathlon, actually, a wilderness triathlon with some friends, and just about everything I used on that trip was was used gear, was used gear that I got on sale somewhere or got online. Um, nothing was really nothing was brand new, honestly. And I bring that up to say, rerouted.co is an incredible place to find and sell, buy and sell used gear. W- one of the reasons I'm able to go out, you know, it, as much as I can, is making the the experience affordable. And, and one of the biggest ways to make that experience affordable is the gear. So I really am a huge proponent of finding used, unique pieces of gear uh, that serve the purpose they need to, save you a lot of money, and ultimately get you out there. Because kind of the unofficial slogan of this show is get out there and have some fun. And if buying something used is going to get you out there more often because you can afford it now versus having to save for six months, do it now. Go to rerouted.co, browse through what they have, see, see if there's something on there you need, or if you've got something in your closet that you no longer use, put it up there for sale. Someone can use it and they can get out there, get some stories and eventually be on this show. So check out rerouted.co. Let's get into the episode. All right, folks, welcome to uh, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, we're talking to Jeremy Evans, and uh, it's a great story. There's a lot I don't know about it yet, so I'm I'm really curious to hear more. Uh, but Jeremy, we were talking a little before. Welcome to the show. Well, hey, Mason, thanks for having me. It's exciting. It's always exciting to talk about subjects I write about. I'm always passionate about it, and hopefully, uh, yeah, your listeners can get something out of this. Oh, man, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I kind of stopped you just a second ago, but one thing I always ask first is where you're coming from, 
and, and where's home for you and just a little bit about your background in, in adventure. Yeah, so I live in South Lake Tahoe now. Um, I've been here every winter since January of 2000, since January of 2001. I left for one year up to the Portland, Oregon area and then came right back to Tahoe. I, I got to Tahoe, like I said, in January 2001. I got my start out of college as a newspaper reporter, as a sports writer in Carson City, Nevada. And that started around June of 2000. And right when I got here, you know, I was a college soccer player at Marquette University. I did some Boy Scouts and hiking and stuff growing up in Arizona. But I kind of picked this job in Carson City, Nevada, because it was right next to Lake Tahoe. So within six months of getting the job, I moved to Tahoe, learned how to snowboard, uh, started climbing a bunch, mountain biking a bunch, and just kind of really getting into that outdoor lifestyle. And then the whole time I was a sports writer and started doing magazines, things like that. And Interesting enough, the story on Marco Safredi disappearing on Everest started at that first job. It didn't really come to fruition and to me writing about it till almost you know 15 years later. But one night in 2001, I was sitting there at my desk at the Nevada Appeal newspaper in Carson City. And across the AP wire, you know, the wire service, I would send his stories. There was a story about a 22-year-old French snowboarder who just made the first complete descent of Mount Everest. You know, I had just getting into climbing in the Sierra Nevada and the Cascades and snowboarding that previous winter. And that just sounded pretty cool to me. But the thing is, Internet was still in this kind of nascent stage. There wasn't a lot written about him. And what was written about him was mostly in French. And he just seemed like an intriguing guy. And then, you know, a year later, a little more than a year later, another story came across the AP wire that said, you know, French snowboarder missing on Mount Everest. And it was Marco Safredi again. He had gone back a year and a half later to tackle a more difficult route and mysteriously disappeared. No trace of him. His, his tracks just ended at 28,000 feet. And that was, the, that was the end of it. And again, I couldn't really get much information on Marco simply because there wasn't that much written about him. And we can go into the reasons for that. But then since that, forward, you know, that period of time, like I said, in 2003, I went up to Portland, Oregon to work at a larger newspaper in Vancouver, Washington, but really missed the mountains and snowboarding. And I came right back to Tahoe to write my first book about ski bums in America and the kind of changing American ski town. But during that time, it was really just a good excuse to come back to, to Tahoe and snowboard. And then really through myself, I started traveling up to South America, climbing in the Cordillera Blanca in Peru, climbing in Bolivia and Ecuador. And things like that and just really kind of merge these two activities that Marco did. And then as I did that, as I got a bit older, I looked back and I realized that Marco was climbing way more difficult routes and snowboarding down these routes of, of peaks I had done in the Andes. And I just started kicking around with the idea of just whatever happened to Marco Safredi. And that's kind of a crash course, I guess you could say, in me, with me January of 2001 until I got the idea to write this book on Marco. So interesting, man. I, I, you know, it's obviously a tragic story, like I mentioned before, but something about it just just grabbed you. And the timing, like you said, the internet was still, you know, much younger than it is twenty years later. Now, um, it, it's not as easy as a Google search necessarily back then to, to find everything you needed. Now, there there is some stuff, but what? What about it specifically made you want to devote this much time and energy to? figuring out what happened? Well, I think the very first thing I just had admiration for an athlete. You know, I was a sports writer. I was a former collegiate soccer player. I'm in Lake Tahoe around world-class climbers and snowboarders and skiers. And so someone that can climb Mount Everest and successfully snowboard down already would just kind of pique my interest. But because I got into snowboarding and climbing myself, mountaineering more than rock climbing, more glacier and snow, um, is you got to be great at two different activities and two different disciplines. Sure. There's a lot of great mountaineers out there that can perform at high altitude. And there's a lot of great snowboarders out there, but it's hard to kind of fuse those together and be a lead at both. And I think that's what you need to pull off climbing an 8,000 meter peak on Mount Everest. And that was not Marco's first. I mean, he was young when he disappeared at 23, but he had just learned to snowboard at 16. And within a year of learning how to snowboard, he was, he was, snowboarding the most difficult lines in Chamonix and he didn't skip rungs on the ladder I mean he did the proper progression he didn't skip steps he was very calculative he just was doing it at a really fast pace and so the, the first part that's interested me was as an athlete I mean th this guy seems amazing 
And then as I learned more, the disappearing aspect always kind of pulls at your heartstrings a little bit, your parents. And it's just intriguing. Lots of people die on Everest. Uh, hundreds of people have died on Everest. But nobody has really disappeared without a trace of what happened to them, no remnants of them within a decade or so later. And so obviously that kind of pulled at me. And then once I started to get into the book, I learned more about or writing research in the book. Sorry. I learned more about Marco as a person. Uh, you know, he has dyed hair, purple hair one day, green hair, piercings. He's kind of a punk rock guy, but also a mama's boy and very down to earth and humble. You know, he didn't seek sponsorships. He didn't go after competitions. He didn't care about fame or getting in magazines. He just happened to be the world's best snowboarder at a time when nobody knew about him. And it's almost like a bit of an Edgar Allan Poe situation. No one's probably going to really appreciate his talents now until he's gone. And I just thought a lot of stuff had been written about him in French, but not much in English. And I just went over there one summer in 2017 and thought, let, let me hang out in Chamonix just because I wanted to do that anyways. Uh, but what can I learn more about this Marco character? And certainly that kind of propelled me forward with the book. Can you explain just, it obviously sounds, you know, nuts snowboarding off Everest. Can you, but can you explain from someone that knows more about the sport, like at the time, how big of a deal was that or how crazy was that? Well, th that minute, you know, that feat in 2001, there, it was impossible at that point. The whole world did find out about it. If you were into climbing and Everest and snowboarding, you heard about that feat. And that's how Marco's name, he did get known. There's no way to ignore that accomplishment because he was the first to make a complete descent of Everest. And I use the adjective complete because there was an Austrian there actually the day before Marco left the summit that he also snowboarded from the summit, but he had to unstrap. He had to down climb without his snowboard. And so, you know, in the parlance of backcountry skiing and snowboarding, there is like an aesthetic to it. And do you, do you repel and do you take off uh, your snowboard or your gear? And so Marco got credit with the first complete descent, which means he left the summit and then never unstrapped until he got down to a fixed camp. And so that really propelled him. And the other thing that helped him was he was mostly with an, um, uh, Russell Bryce. He ran a company called Him Himex, which is a huge Everest expedition company. Russell Bryce lived in the Chamonix area part-time. And Marco's father was kind of sick and tired of hearing Marco constantly tell him how he wants to snowboard Everest. And so his father finally said, you need to connect with Russell Bryce if you want to do this. I'm kind of sick of hearing about it. And they, they, did, they did connect one afternoon in Chamonix. And Marco shared his dreams of snowboarding Everest. And then Russell thought it could be done, but he's going to have to go to some other 8,000 meter peaks and first prove to Russell that he can perform in high altitude. And so they had a bit of a relationship going, almost a, a surrogate, if you will, father-son relationship. You know, Russell Bryce didn't have any kids, but he seemed like he really took in Marco. He was young at the time and just wanted to bring him along to chase his dream of snowboarding down Mount Everest. So then when he finally did it in 2001, you know, it did get in magazines and it did get known. It just, like like we talked about, the internet was not uh, at what, what it was today. If it happened today with social media and Instagram, there probably would have been like a TV camera or a crew with him. But that just wasn't. Oh, totally, totally. Red Bull would have been all over it. Yeah, exactly. So it just wasn't happening in 2001. And that's not why he did it. But Marco knew enough that when he did big descents, he had to have a photographer there. He had to document it in some way. And he, like I said, he, he didn't like sponsorships. He wasn't going to win competitions and he wasn't going for fame, but he certainly liked acknowledgement for what he was doing. I mean, he's from Chamonix, which is a mountain community in France in the shadow of Mont Blanc. And he grew up around these figures that, you know, death and danger and bravery in the mountains just is kind of part of their DNA. And how can you get bigger and braver than snowboarding off Everest? And interesting enough, too, he was the first person that was born in Chamonix that had ever climbed Everest. So you think of Chamonix as this great mountain paradise, which it is, but a lot of people that live in Chamonix moved to Chamonix. They weren't actually born in Chamonix. So there was a, there was a great pride and sense of pride in the town that one of their native sons climbed to the top of Mount Everest for the first time of anybody in Chamonix, and then obviously made the world's first complete descent. And so that was a big deal in the outdoor adventure world. The thing that was different about Marco was he was obsessed over a route on Mount Everest North Face called the Hornbein Kular. 
which is named after American Tom Hornbein, who in 1963 first went up that with his partner. And he had always wanted to do the Hornbein Kular since he started snowboarding for the most part. I mean, first he learned how to snowboard, but within a year, it was pretty clear this guy was really talented and he was maybe put on earth just to snowboard. And he always had wanted to do the Hornbein Kular. It's on the north face of Everest. It's a direct aesthetic line that kind of splits the mountain through its limestone face. And it's the most coveted line in backcountry skiing and snowboarding. Even to this day, it's the most coveted line in backcountry skiing and snowboarding. And so everything he did was to go and do the Hornbine. So even though in 2001, he had success on the Norton Kular, which is amazing footage. You know, if you can go online and there'll be some stuff. I'm going to have a book trailer coming out when my book's released next week that shows this feat. I mean, it's amazing footage, but he was always, he wasn't looking in the rear view mirror. He wasn't looking to pat himself on the back. He was always looking to do the Hornbine Kular. He couldn't do it in 2001 because he climbed in the spring and the snow conditions were scant. He probably shouldn't even been snowboarding the Norton Kular because it was really sketchy conditions, hard pack, ice, a lot of difficult sections. You had to connect and hop turn. I mean, we're, we're talking, if you fall, you die. There's no way to arrest a fall. And so he knew he had to go back in the in the post monsoon season of August and September where there'd be more snow, and that was his ultimate goal. So most people would have kind of hung up the snowboard at that point, maybe got into big wave surfing or something else. But for Marco, snowboarding and climbing Everest in 2001 was still just the beginning because he ultimately always wanted to do that hornbind Kular, and that's where he got himself into trouble going back. He, he, obviously, snowboarding and climbing was an obsession for him, but the hornbind Kular in particular was his obsession and that has its own that route has its own set of difficulties that made his expedition in 2002 when he disappeared wholly different than the success in the expedition he had in 2001 that successful descent of everest on on snowboard did you get a sense of how it went for him in the sense of easier or harder than he expected and did it bring a certain level of fame or a certain level of, of recognition that that uh, that he was trying to replicate or, or build on, not in a bad way, but in like a healthy way. Like, wow, this was this was incredible. Yeah, there's this is where we're getting into the the interesting part about Marco was his character hmm. is like all elite athletes. You have to be obsessed. You have to be ambitious. You're not always egotistical in a bad way. You have to have supreme confidence in yourself, and so. There was a Slovenian skier who thought it would be impossible to ski or snowboard the North Face in spring. And when he finally had that success in 2001, one of the one of his quotes to Russell Bryce after and Russell Bryce had to spot him from the summit through his uh, telescope. And then he would talk to him via two way radio and, hey, go left here, go right here. You're coming up on a cliff. So he needed help to get down. And Marco was always willing to accept that help. And then he finally completes it and Russell asks how he feels. And one of his comments is, oh, you know, the Slovenian skier said it couldn't be done. And we showed him it could be. And it wasn't like he was doing as a ones up. And it just it was, you know, how competitive athletes like a Michael Jordan, a Tom Brady, they almost <laughs> they almost create scenarios in their head that don't aren't really there to keep that right. competition right. going, that competitive edge going. And that's what Marco did. So he kind of perceived some challenges that maybe weren't there, which is probably why he got himself into trouble that fateful day in 2002. But in 2001, he was just a mellow, happy-go-lucky kid. I talked to all the most of the climbers on that expedition. You know, there was an East Easter, the Easter holiday passed by early on that expedition, connected with a Colorado climber, a female climber named Ellen Miller, who was attempting to climb, be the first person to climb from the north and south side routes on Mount Everest. And she remembers Marco calling his family one day on the satellite phone. That was the thing. Marco was a big mama's boy. He had a girlfriend. He loved his family and friends. He would run up the satellite phone bill on those Everest expeditions. Um, like everybody else combined would not have the bill that Marco had. And Russell Bryce's expedition leader just kind of let it happen because it's almost like his son mm -hmm. to some extent. And uh, she remembers, Ellen Miller remembers Marco coming back from a phone call, really excited and saying in French, happy Easter. He didn't know it was Easter and his parents had reminded him. And Ellen is like, here's this young kid, 21. He's about to turn 22 right before he snowboards Everest in a couple of weeks. And he wants to paint eggs and eat chocolate and celebrate Easter. Um, 
and little things like that. He he would he would paint a lot. His favorite childhood book was The Little Prince, um, which is a popular French children's book that now is worldwide. And he would keep that with him next to his sleeping bag. And interesting enough, the fate of Marco almost mirrors the fate of the protagonist in The Little Prince. And he was just very much a youth and a kid and a big happy-go-lucky kid. And he never talked about himself, even though here he was trying to snowboard Everest. He was able to mix in with the rest of the group. And it was a very talented group. There was a lot of, you know, it's a little bit different than Everest climbs today. Back in 2001, Russell Bryce's team, we're talking accomplished mountaineers that all came together. It wasn't just who could afford it. And Marco's this larger-than-life character, and he just seems like a down-to-earth person. He's considered the world's best snowboarder, but he never talks about himself. Um, when they're in Lhasa, Tibet, on the way to Everest Base Camp, He's skateboarding around town and taking little Tibetan children on a skateboard for rides while everybody else is on this serious expedition, feeling really feeling like they're really important. Marco's like a big game to Marco. But then on the flip side, when he got to the mountain, he studied the mountain. He was very calculated, very focused, almost like serious. Right? He could switch it on and off. And so that's just a juxtaposition, I think, of really elite athletes. And Marco fit into that. But, yeah, when he when he summited. He was down before everybody else because obviously he snowboarded down. The rest of the team had a lot of success. And when everybody got back down from summiting themselves, he could have been there drinking a beer, talking about himself. And he was more happy for everybody else that they also achieved their dreams and were able to summit. And so, yeah, he was just a very humble person, but at the same time, the most talented snowboarder in the world. So just a very interesting juxtaposition on that 2001 climb. How epic was it to descend? Did he say? Did anyone recall that? Yeah, it almost seemed like there was a sense of relief. I mean, there was a joy. There's just something about his smile. And I remember talking to his dad one day, and his dad was flipping through pictures of Marco, and he showed me his favorite picture of Marco, and he looks sunburnt, faces chapped, skin's chapped, rat. He hasn't had a shower in a long time, and the reason why that it was just right coming out of base camp on the way down from 2001 after he had summited Everest and his dad loves that picture because he's like, my son looks happy. He looks fulfilled. You know, he looks proud of himself. And I think that's what it was. It wasn't a relief that I think he was always confident he could do it. I mean, he had supreme confidence and we can get into that, but he felt very fulfilled and he felt proud that he had a dream of snowboarding and he accomplished the dream. And I just, oh, that always kind of stuck with me. The dad, this picture where her son doesn't look that nice. There's no makeup. He's not, I mean, he looks as rough as rough can get, but the facial expression I write about in the book was just one of immense pride and satisfaction. And I just don't think many people in day-to-day life feel that way unless they carry out their dreams and they fulfill their dreams. And for a 22 year old to do that, I think back to myself and what was I doing at 22? I was barely graduating college figuring out how to get through classes and probably partying a lot on the weekends or something where this guy was hyper-focused and chasing big dreams. And that's what, you know, ultimately intrigued me as well. But there just seemed like a sense of fulfillment from him, but he didn't gloat. And he really was genuinely happy for everybody else on the summit um, that made the summit. An interesting story below the summit, he's, he's coming down in 2001 and his binding breaks, his binding breaks at over 28,000 feet and most people would be like, well, the, the expedition over. Let me just down climb from this point. I don't need to snowboard. But no, Sherpas up there had a, had some bailing wire. And they re kind of, they basically fixed his binding so he could continue down the route. And he still had eight, 9,000 feet to go on the most challenging terrain. He basically hadn't even started yet. And so the Ellen Miller was struggling, not struggling the summit. She was like everybody else. She was getting there up the summit. And Marco was a fast climber as well. He, he could keep up with the Sherpas. I mean, the Sherpas have no equal, but Marco was pretty dang close. And they respected him for that. And so anyways, he was coming down a bit earlier than everybody else. And his binding had broke. And he made sure he rode over to Ellen Miller and some other team members to check on them. Hey, you don't have that much further to go. I'm behind you. So here he is in the middle of his life's crowning achievements and his binding just broke. So he should be worried about his life. And he's more worried about everybody else on the team and whether they're going to summit and how they were doing at that moment. And then uh, the Sherpas help fix his binding, he gets back in his snowboard, and then he pulls off probably the greatest snowboarding and mountaineering feat in history. 
on a broken binding. Are you serious? I didn't know that. Yes. On a, on a broken binding. And Russell Bryce is following him from below at the North Pole at about 21,000 feet. And he knows something's going on. And then he hears on the radio this binding's broke. And then he sees him keep going. And Russell's saying to himself, Marco, what are you doing, mate? Um, this is not a good idea. And then he starts entering some really difficult terrain, high angle terrain, difficult snow. And the other thing, too, is there's a steepness when you ski and snowboard. There's a rollover, the horizontal view sometimes people call it, where you can't see. It's, it's so steep. You don't know if it's 10 feet or 100 feet. And Marco goes into this area on Mount Everest all alone, even though he's connected by radio. Something happens to him. He's all alone. And Russell Bryce is saying, hop here, hop here. Here comes the cliff. And there's a one moment at the top of the Norton Pular at just under 28,000 feet, about 28,000 feet, where he has to hop like 10 feet off this section. And he goes out of Russell's view from the telescope and then he disappears for a couple of minutes and Russell thinks something has happened. And then he pops back into view. And essentially what happened was he jumped off that little cliff. It looks like a rock from 22,000 feet, but it was about a 10 foot cliff at 28,000 feet. And he jumped off it on a broken binding. And I guess his knees slammed into his chest and he kind of was hyperventilating, kind of knocked the wind out of him. He had to collect himself for a couple of minutes and that's why Russell couldn't see him. Then he pops back into view. And so, yeah, this is just the confidence and the talent of this guy. Totally alone, broken binding. No one's ever done it before. And he's just a cool, calm customer. You know, it's just so crazy. It might seem obvious, but but could you just tell us, you know, some of you, you just mentioned a few, but I want to hear maybe some more if you can think of it. What makes it so difficult to, to snowboard Everest or, or any of these huge mountains is it why, why is it not just a a really 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 long ski slope you know what I'm saying like what makes <laughs> yeah. it so much challenging is it the elevation itself or is it the terrain is it a combination of all that what what about it is so difficult well it really is the combination of all the things because let's just start with the altitude I mean obviously the body performs increasingly worse as you get higher in altitude you lose some brain functions you know, so you have to really take care of the climatization process as you're climbing up. And Marco found that part really tedious. Um, he privately would complain because he was about his teammates, not because he was mad at them, but he was fit. He was strong. He could have climbed faster, but he also knew the value of a team. So he did buy into the whole team concept and climbing slowly and climatizing. And he struggled. You know, he needed oxygen. He used oxygen on the way up to climb. On the way down, he had oxygen. But he, he found he couldn't snowboard with the oxygen mask on because it was very constricting. So what he would do is he would snowboard for a bit, stop, breathe a few puffs of oxygen, take off the mask, and then continue on. So I think the number one thing is, is high altitude and how the oxygen affects your brain and affects your body. I mean, just physically getting to the top of these mountains and walking back down is a monumental effort. And now you have to get up there and perform actions on a snowboard different muscle set there's no warm-up run there's no bunny hill to get started you have to stand on top of an 8,000 meter summit and strap your snowboard on and then start making turns and that leads in the second part it, the snow conditions are usually fairly difficult right it's wind scoured snow it could be ice it could be snow it's not going to look your local ski resort when you know it's snowed 10 inches and you know it's going to be for you know hero snow as we call it and snow that can be forgivable so you have to be able to deal with the snow conditions. So you have all that. And, and then you have the train itself. I, most of this stuff that Marco was doing, and he learned this at a long age, is you fall, you die. Uh, the, the French kind of invented extreme skiing and perfected it and glorified it. And Marco just grew up with that as a kid. I mean, he got into routes where if I make a mistake and I fall here, I die. And he just made peace with that. And that's the definition of extreme skiing from France. And I think now it obviously permeates all the cultures and that's how people define it. And so I think you just combine all those things. You have the altitude, you have the snow conditions, and then obviously you have the route itself. And it's not just a smooth snow slope. There could be a tight little couloir like an hourglass. It could be 60 degrees. I mean, 60 degrees means you're balancing on one edge on your heels or your toes and you will flip up and over. Uh, you, you cannot stop yourself. It's so steep that if you put your hand to your right or left, depending how you're going down, your hand will crash into the side of the mountain. That's how steep it is. So he was doing this at very steep degrees, anywhere from 45 to 60 degrees, um, questionable snow quality. 
the crux section of the route in 2001 was about halfway down the Northern Kular and it's about a 60 foot section, a labyrinth of rocks and little shoots. And that was a section that he knew was the crux. Marco had been studying it the whole way during the expedition. And he thought he was going to have to set up a rappel and rappel down that section. And so did Russell Bryce. So when he got to that section, he sat down and Russell thought something was going on. Nothing was going on. Marco was just collecting his thoughts. And really what Russell thought was he was setting up a rappel. And then he was shocked. 30 seconds later, Marco sat back up and started billy goading around this cliff section where he can't see anything. It's, it's really steep. It's 55 degrees. He's using his, his memory from pictures of where the cliffs are going to lead out, what cliff ends in a terminal cliff, what leads to another little snow patch. And he essentially just billy goaded himself down and hopped from snow patch to snow patch because he did not want to repel. He wanted to make that continuous descent. He wanted a pure descent. And so that's the other problem with these routes is it isn't just a smooth snow slope. I mean, a lot of people can ski 50, 60 degrees in, in certain conditions, soft snow conditions. You fall, you might not fall the way. You don't got a terminal cliff worried about it on your, on your left and right. And so that's the last piece that really makes these 8,000 meter peaks difficult. You don't know the snow conditions. You don't know how your body's going to perform. Like I was saying earlier, a lot of people can climb at high altitude. A lot of people can snowboard the terrain or ski the terrain at high altitude, but fusing the two activities together, is just a, it's a real elite set of people. And so Russell Bryce even told me at one point he thought about offering expeditions to 8,000 meter peaks, ski and snowboard expeditions. And he's just kind of like, ah, it died his own death. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. It's not a really nice descent. I mean, it's rough snow. It's difficult terrain. I mean, people would much rather go to a ski resort after it snowed 10 or 12 inches and deal with this terrain. So he's like, yeah, there was never a market for it. Um, and the only people that really do it are these really extreme athletes that have this obsession to succeed or accomplish something. And certainly Marco was, you know, was in that mold. He had a successful descent after all that craziness. And I, I wanted to know from you what he, he goes to do it again in 2002. Um, how, how did this differ? How was this, how, how was he just as confident going in? And, and ultimately we know it, it was, he, he did not make it down. So can you tell us what, what is known about what happened? Yeah. So it's, it, it's a tricky one. Here comes the intriguing, mysterious, you know, mystery part is after 2001, he goes back to Chamonix and he sits down and talks with his family and he says, I, I want to go back to Everest and I want to do the Hornbein. Well, Russell Bryce is a critical part. He helps him down. He provides logistics. He has Sherpa support. And Russell Bryce, he knows he has to, Marco knows he has to do it in August or September when there's sufficient snow cover to do the hornbine. And so Russell says, I can't go with you this year. I, I need to be on Choyoyu, you know, a neighboring 8,000 meter peak. Um, I, I can't be there. This is probably the first mistake Marco makes is he wants to go anyways. He's like, no, I know the mountain. I can go by myself. So his parents, he has to convince his parents to let him go because Marco made his money. He didn't come from a, he's not like a trust fund kid. And he didn't come from superior wealth, but his parents were certainly upper middle class. They owned some property, ran businesses. And he ran the, the family's campground in Chamonix. He would clean toilets. He would mow grass. He would check people in and clean up campsites. And that's how he made his money to fund these expeditions. But this one was a much different price tag, and he had to get his parents on board to go back in 2002. His, mo his mother was totally against it. She didn't understand why he would want to go back. She was worried sick every day like any mother would, and he finally gets success and accomplishes his dream. But mom didn't fully understand that his real obsession was the Hornbein Coulard. Another thing I should note, and I forgot to say it, must shows you how bad I'm at this sometime is that Marco had a brother when Marco was 18 months old, his brother mm -hmm. Pierre died in an avalanche outside of Chamonix. And that was his parents' firstborn child was Pierre. And so the mother, like a lot of mothers in Chamonix, you know, they, they're worried about their children out in the mountains. They do dangerous things in Chamonix. If you go to the cemetery in Chamonix, it's not a bunch of 70, 80, 90 year olds that live the long life. It's a lot of teenagers, 20 year olds, 30 year olds, that have died in the mountains. So it is incredibly mom, sad. <laughs> yeah, Gosh. I mean, that's, I start out my, er, you know, the book early on about the gravestones, the gravestones and the inscriptions. And it, it is sad. You realize right away, wow, this is a little different community because I feel like you can learn a lot 
from cemeteries and about a town and the culture of the town. And uh, certainly if you go to the Chamonix Cemetery, tucked up against these waterfalls, a beautiful hillside, you get this ugly reality of Chamonix and this how they deal with death and how young people die there. And so Marco's mom was not a fan of a lot of Marco's stuff. Marco's parents also were pretty uh, unaware of the things their son was doing in the mountains. And part of that, his friends surmised, were because he didn't want to concern his parents after what happened to his oldest brother. Marco never knew his brother. You know, he was 18 months old when he passed away. And then he had two older sisters in between. So you had Pierre was the oldest, two sisters, and then Marco was the baby boy. And so Marco's mom wanted nothing to do with the 2002 return trip. But the father grew up as a mountain guy. The father was a lot more supportive of Marco's goals. And the other thing is Marco's obsessed. So if you say no to Marco, he's probably going to do it anyways. And that's ultimately what happened is Russell said, I cannot be there with you this time. I need to be there to spot you. Marco, it's a big area. Also in the, in the autumn versus the spring, there's, there was no one on the mountain. He went back. Nobody else was back there. Where in 2001, there were other teams and there was other help. And although when he snowboarded down in 2001, if something happened to him, he knew he was alone. I mean, it, it, they would have found out where his body was, but it would have uh, been a body recovery. But in 2002, no one else was on the mountain but him, three Sherpas, and, and a cook, uh, and, and a yak herder, essentially, right? So it, it, everything was different. The calculus was different in 2002. But Russell Bryce and his parents ultimately permitted Marco to go because Russell Bryce gave him Perbatashi. Perbatashi was, is, was and still is the most accomplished Everest climber in the, in the Sherpa community, him and Marco had grown pretty close because they got to know each other on earlier expeditions. So Russell Bryce, his concession was, well, Marco's going to go regardless. It's clear he's going to go regardless. He's going to be able to convince his parents to fund it in some way. I would rather provide some level of support than no support. If I feel he's going to go anyways, I'd rather be able to help him in some ways I can. So Russell allowed Perbatashi to join Marco and two other Sherpas in 2002. And, but that was already the first mistake is not having Russell there, not having a spotter. And the Sherpas, the other thing too, is the relationship's different. Russell's the expedition leader. Marco looked up to Russell. He respected him. If he told him it was dangerous, you can't go up, Marco would listen. The, the calculus was different too in 2002, not just because no one else was on the mountain and Russell wasn't there to spot him, the calculus was different because Marco was the de facto expedition leader. And that's a dangerous thing because this is an obsessed person trying to do the most dangerous thing in skiing and snowboarding. He's really and young. No one, and he's young. And no one's overseeing him. And the Sherpas, they never really want people to do dangerous things because they're always called in to rescue people. And it puts them in danger. But there was, there was real concern that 2002 trip without having Russell he was in charge of himself for the most part, but he did respect Perbatashi. But then again, here he, here he is on the summit of 2002. He made it. He's got his snowboard. At this point, he's not turning back. The other problem in 2002 was they, he really advanced his acclimatization schedule. So he was going up quicker. He was not as acclimatized and the route was harder. So he's climbing through chest deep snow. It took him 12 hours from high camp to the summit in 2002 it only took him four hours in 2001. I mean, he was up there before sunrise, shivering with the Sherpas in 2001, where in 2002, it took him 12 hours through waist-deep snow to stand up there at 2 o'clock. So that was different. He was definitely more physically exhausted, probably mentally exhausted. He didn't have Russell Bryce spotting him. So there was he wasn't as acclimatized. The weather was not cooperating. So that's probably the next big thing is he was connected with the weather forecaster in Chamonix and they were having very difficult weather patterns up until that point. Snow would come in every day, obliterate the route. They got really concerned. He knew he was not acclimatized, but the, the forecaster in Chamonix gave him a weather window and everything on Everest is about a weather window. It can't be climbed year round. It can't be climbed most of the year. In fact, there's only a few weeks out of the year it can be safely climbed or you can count on it being safely climbed from a weather perspective. And so he's there without Russell. He's going faster than he had, or sorry, he's going slower than he did the previous year, but he's acclimatizing, trying to acclimatize faster. The weather's not cooperating. The Sherpas haven't even put the route up above camp one. And the forecaster says, hey, you're going to get a weather window for the next six days. 
after that, it doesn't look good for the rest of the month. I, I can't tell you. I'm only confident that the next six days are looking, they're going to, it's going to get progressively better after day three and then be great for like days four, five, and six. And then it looks that bad again. So the minute Marco heard that, he wanted to accelerate his climbing schedule because he knew that everything on Everest is a weather window. And he felt this was his weather window and he had to go take it. So he climbed a little more aggressively, wasn't fully acclimatized, and he went for he went for the summit on September 8, 2002. And it was a perfect day. The day before was a perfect day. He was calling his friends and family from high camp at about 27,000 feet. And you could light a match. His family and friends, he was upbeat. He was ready to go. He didn't seem like the oxygen was bothering him as far as lack of oxygen. So he was acclimatized enough to make the summit. Um, but the weather was perfect. I mean, they didn't hear any wind in the background. And so he climbs and obviously the conditions were slower. And he now he's up there in 2002. It's 2 p.m. He seemed very tired. Perbatashi noticed that um, he was much more tired and kind of much more serious. He wasn't the happy-go-lucky Marco celebrating Easter and eating chocolate and stuff as the previous year. It was He seemed like a more focused serious customer in 2002 but then here he was at, at, on the summit he's there for about an hour his, his energy gets restored his spirits get restored and some of what resembled marco came back but you know about 3 15 he starts down in the afternoon the way he was going to set up too is the hornbein kular leads to the rongbuk glacier and there was a camp down there where sherpa was waiting for him so he climbed up the same route he did in 2001 but he was going to go down a different route and end up at a different route. And that's why Russell Price was so important to this, to have a spotter, because he was going down a different way he climbed up and returning to a different camp than he did in 2001. But he starts down at around 315. Uh, looks like he's aiming toward the, the Hornby and Kular. He's got to make a really long traverse. He basically goes to the same exact route he did in 2001, and then he has to traverse about a quarter mile to a, a half mile further across the north face. And then clouds obscured him shortly after leaving the summit. They could, you know, his tracks went down to about 28,215 feet. Clouds obscured him. Then the clouds broke up again. And then people from advanced base camp said they never saw him again. And that's really what happened. Um, he was wearing a bright yellow down suit, a black snowboard. People had looked for him for years afterwards. We can talk about that. Um, but there really is no discernible reason what happened to him at where his tracks ended. People thought, well, did he fall in a crevasse, you know, a crack in the glacier? Well, there are no crevasses at 28,215 feet where his tracks ended. Oh, well, did, did he die of an avalanche? That's possible because even a small little slough would probably knock him off his feet, cause problems. But a, a catastrophic avalanche that would send him propelling down the mountain in a major fall, there was no crowning, as they call it, you know, where there's evidence of avalanche or no other avalanche debris. So it didn't look like a big avalanche um, would have sent him careening down the mountain. Hmm. If it was a small avalanche, you would eventually see him there. I mean, we're talking a bright yellow down suit and a black snowboard. And we'll talk about the, the rescue efforts or the discovery efforts after. Um, he could take a fall. He, he could have went back to the previous route because he had success there. Uh, he could have got lost. Um, going across the north face. So the Hornbine Pilar just has some very difficult features to it, one of which is what they call the exit crack. If you're kind of if you're climbing up the Hornbine, there's a, about a 60-foot cliff section that would be the crux of the route. And if you're climbing up it, that's kind of that safeguards the summit from the sorry, you inside the Kular to the summit pyramid. Marco would approach that crux from above, meaning he would be coming across or sorry, traversing across the north face. He would get to this crux section, assuming he made it this far, and he would have to negotiate this 60-foot cliff that could have been filled in with snow, might not have been. I mean, we're only talking about a handful of people in the history of the world that have ever been up in this area. So I had to talk to as many as possible and get their idea of what could have happened to him if he made it that far. So what I do in the book is I just have to eventually process elimination, if you will, go from the least likely to the most likely fate for Marco. But in general, everything leading up to the moment the clouds covered him and they broke up and he was never seen again leads to, or it just happened simply because he was not having Russell Bryce. He seemed more obsessed, but at the end of the day, uh, he made it second time in two years. Um, and, and the guy, it was a boy in his dream. He wanted to snowboard the Hornbein Kular. You're not going to get Marco Safredi to say no when here he is 
perfect snow conditions, really low avalanche danger at that time of year. If they hadn't snowed the previous couple of days, he's standing on the summit. You're not going to get him to turn around. And, you know, everybody else I talked to said every other little thing you just described, Jeremy, anybody else would turn around, uh, but not Marco Sofredi. And so that just kind of shows you his level of confidence. And that's what his dream was. And uh, I just think growing up in Chamonix kind of goes back to you have big dreams, bold dreams. They're not always safe dreams, um, but certainly he wasn't going to compromise his own values at that moment. Hey, folks, we're going to listen to some supporters messages real quick, and then we'll get back to the episode. All right, that is plenty of that. Let's get back into it. You know, I I can't keep uh, from just feeling so terrible for the parents to lose two kids, you Mm -hmm. know? I I just can't even imagine. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. And interesting enough, I would always assume when I wrote this book, simply because not much has been written about Marco in English, is, yeah, the climbers, the snowboarders, the skiers, they're going to love this book. But interestingly enough, a lot of mothers have taken the most interest in the story. Like when I describe, you know, peer groups or whoever else I come across my day-to-day life, mothers seem very interested in this. And I'm guessing it's because it's the baby boy it's a lost child. There's no closure. There's no body. Um, that's not how you're supposed to. It's not how this is supposed to go in this world. You're supposed to bury your parents, not the other way around. But even if it goes the other way around, you you, ha- you usually have a body. And it's a very so it's just it, it ripped their parents apart. It really did. And I remember when I first talked to his one his uh, older sister, Valerie, who was running the campground that I was staying at in Chamonix, the same campground that Marco worked at. I was there for a couple of weeks doing some other things, doing Chamonix things. And I knew eventually I wanted to approach her to talk about Marco. At the time, I didn't know I was going to write a book. I, I just was there. And I admired her son. He wasn't like an inspiration to me in terms of I had like posters of him and all that, like a Michael Jordan, if you will. But uh, I definitely admired his talents. And I wanted it would be an honor to meet his sister, essentially. And so we, we got the talking a little bit. And then she made it very clear at the end, like, that's it. Do not go talk to my parents. My parents are broken over this. They're basically dead inside. And I, I respected that at first. But then obviously when I continue on, it's like, well, I, I want to write a book about this now. Like my agent and the American audience seems like there, sorry, there is an American audience. Uh, finally, I was able to permit to talk to the family. And the father was great. Uh, the mother would not talk to me. She was supportive of the book and knew what I was doing, but she could not talk. I mean, we're talking 20 years later almost. She's still unable to talk about her son. And he had a very serious girlfriend at the time named Stephanie. And I tried to talk to her and she also could not talk. I mean, everybody else was very supportive. It's not that they didn't want to talk um, because they didn't like my project or weren't interested in my project. They were emotionally incapable um, of talking about Marco even all these years later. And obviously it goes back to the mother lost her firstborn child to the mountains and her lastborn child to the mountains. And then her last one, Obviously, they, they didn't even find the body. And what's really, I mean, the saddest part, um, yeah, I try not to get too connected to my subject, but for a book like this, it's pretty much impossible. Um, you know, even though the mother wouldn't speak, I was able to uh, acquire her diary. When she went back to Tibet and Nepal after Marco had disappeared, they had, to, they had to pick up belongings. They went to the north face of Everest and had a little ceremony for Marco. And I was able to pay a translator from French to English to transcribe her diary and her father, sorry, Marco's father said it was okay. Um, and it's really touching. It's pretty emotional how a mother loses a child in this way and, and what that does to a mother. And so I think in that, in that realm, it becomes such a human interest story. This is more than snowboarding and skiing and Everest. This is a human story and a lost son and a lost brother. And when you wrap all that together, like you were talking at the beginning, it's a sad story. It's a tragic story. And unfortunately, the way great stories work, it is a great story because of it. And it's not great because of what happened to Marco. I mean, obviously, we all wish he was here, is that it's a great story because there is tragedy and there isn't closure and there aren't like it doesn't get tied up nicely. It's not neatly tied up in a bow. And I say that being the most sensitive. I mean, that's what makes a great story. Sometimes you have death and despair and and really deep, difficult emotions. And so that was the hard part about writing the book is here I am, these people have 
put these memories away and these emotions away for many years. Like I said, there's a couple of French language books, coffee kind of table books written about him. But here I am resurrecting all of these horrible memories and excavating these deep wounds and scars for my book. But on the flip side of that, there was a joy to it because it keeps his spirit alive. We, we talked a lot about the good things and the great things about Marco and the happy moments as well. But I think that's what makes it a great story is it's not necessarily a happy ending, but there are some happy moments and Marco really was an interesting guy. What can folks expect um, when reading the book? I know, I know we got to run. I hate we got to run. I got a lot more questions actually. Right. Um, I don't obviously don't want you to reveal too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what I, when I started to write this book, I realized I had to, I had to structure in a way where, Nobody's going to care about Marco Sofredi disappearing on Mount Everest until they care about Marco Sofredi, the human being, right? And so, yeah, obviously, I start out the book on that fateful last day, September 8, 2002, and then bring up the fact he disappeared. And then we kind of go back and go through Marco's life a bit. And then, you know, I, I had the 2001 expedition going on as we're learning about Marco. And then, obviously, we get to 2002 when he disappears by the midpoint of the book. And then by the end, obviously, I have to give my I'm the writer. I owe it to the readers to kind of say, well, hey, I've given you all the possible things. I mean, there are ideas out there that he actually did succeed and he escaped into Tibetan society and is hanging out. Now, of course, that's a very romantic version because I don't think Marco would do that because he's a mama's boy and he's got piercings and he's got crazy hair. I don't think guys like that can just slip into Tibet without anybody knowing. But it it does get your mind going a little bit. And so I kind of go through each thing by the end. But as far as what what I want people to get out is Marco as a human being. Um, Outside Magazine just wrote a review last week on the book. And the very first line to me is the most important thing that writer could have said was, if you haven't heard of Marco Safredi, the first person, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, the first person to snowboard from Mount Everest, you're not alone. And when I read that, I was like, this is a tragedy. Marco Safredi should be a as big of a name as anybody else in skiing and snowboarding or climbing. And he probably would be if it was this happened in 2018 and not 2002. And I, and I just want people to learn about Marco. Now you get into these themes or these things that lead to themes with youth and adventure and death. Um, But also I just think he's inspirational because he was a young guy. I mean, he's a teenager going to South America and climbing mountains and snowboarding down them were ambition. I mean, he had ambition. I mean, I have young kids now. I have a nine and 11 year old. I'm like, I don't want my daughter to disappear on Everest, but I want my daughter to have goals. And I want my daughters to to live life and have some goals and do something and work toward that. And I think Marco is an inspiration in that level. You don't need to wait till you're 30 and 40. Um, You can, but Marco, here's a teenager with big goals and he's making it happen. And I think that's inspirational. And I think the last one that's just it's difficult to write about. I don't know if I did a great job, but I had to attempt a bit. It's just this idea of, of permanence and death and youth. I mean, obviously people casted him as like, oh, he's a young kook, especially in Chamonix. Like, you know, he, he died. Of course he was, what else do you think was going to happen? But that's not that, I don't think that's fair. That's not accurate. And it's not fair because he was calculative. He didn't just go up willy nilly. He got himself in tough situations, but he was always prepared. And I also think, not everybody's meant to live to 85 years old, sitting in a, a rocking chair with their grandchildren by the fire, enjoying a Christmas dinner or something, right? Like, not everybody is meant to do that. And Marco Safredi, everybody kind of told me that I talked to them, like, listen, Jeremy, if it wasn't the Hornbein Kular on Everest, it would have been K2. It would have been big wave. Sur- I mean, Marco, guys like Marco do not live long, is what everybody said. And you know, in one level, that's sad because he has friends and family and hold on here. Like, but do you want to, do you want to keep someone living longer, but they don't chase their goals? And I just think I, I try to explore that a little bit in the book. And I want people to be able to read that and think about that in their own life is you don't need to do dangerous things like climbing Everest, snowboarding down them. But Marco was ambitious and he had goals and he worked toward them. He, he was not just, he looked like he was a punk rocker, coot snowboarder, piercings all flamboyant but he's actually pretty reserved and mellow and authentic down deep and he just was very committed to his goals he didn't really compromise his values and i think that's an inspirational story that you can be young or you can be middle-aged or you can be older and you can have goals it doesn't matter what year and marco really enjoyed 
being around people that had goals, no matter what they were, no matter what age. And he liked being around other ambitious people. So I think that's one thing. And Marco has a quote when people said, what are you talking about? Snowboarding Everest when you're like 20 years old? I mean, are you insane? Do you have a death wish? And he didn't have a death wish, but he did make a point, And I'm paraphrasing him a little bit because it came originally in French. And he said, listen, if you don't do a few crazy things when you're 20, you're not going to do them at 50. And it's true. I mean, it's true. In many ways, I've slowed down with my mountaineering, my objectives. I have a family. I have, my risk tolerance is different. And that's okay. That, that's just the way it works, right? Um, but I will say in his, in Marco's shop, he's a carpenter. He kind of builds furniture now in retirement. I was talking to him and I saw something and it was in French. And I said, well, what is that? Well, who wrote that? And actually Marco had wrote that it, or it had written on this piece of wood in his dad's shop. And basically it translated in English to say, the more you think, the less you advance. And that, that was a big part of Marco is, yes, you want to be thinking and calculative, but you don't want it to paralyze you from chasing your dreams. And, you know, he, he really felt that he needed to do these things. Mm. And so, yeah. There, that's, that's interesting. You know, I totally get what he's saying with that. The more you think the less you advance, you, you know, it, it, as we get older, I, I mean, you, I know you, I know you can see it, man. I know your dad, uh, I am too. And it's just like, I can tell this decade of my life is very different than the last in a good way. And, but in also in ways that I'm, I'm like, ah, I wish I could get that back. But yes, it, in a lot of well, ways, I'm very yeah. glad I can't. <laughs> and I'm like, nope, I know what that's about. I am, I'm excited about this new chapter. And, um, sometimes when, the, when, when the, when the life stops there, it's just legacy cemented in stone. How I mean, I can't think of a more epic way of going out than snowboarding down Everest. I mean, that's not going to be the way I go out. I promise yeah. you. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think if if your your listeners get the book, they'll kind of see my feelings on the subject by the end. Like, hey, let's let's not criticize. You can criticize everybody anytime, anybody on Everest. A lot of people have been successful and they've gotten lucky. A lot yeah. of people have had tragedy come to them and they made every right decision. There's a risk when you go onto Mount Everest, when you go into a lot of different realms in this world. And it's not helpful to all, I mean, it's helpful to know exactly what happens as an avalanche or something. So we don't repeat it. But Marco, and that's ultimately what I say at the end is Marco had never compromised his values at any moment in his snowboarding career at any time. He wasn't going to do it on that day and nor should he. And that's what makes Marco Marco. And I, I think that's, thing that readers should get out of this book is this is a very special person a very talented person obviously an eccentric person you know because he did have his little kind of idiosyncrasies like everybody else i mean when he got back from 2001 there was a tv uh reporter in paris and they wanted to interview him for just being the first person to snowboard everest and you know what marco does sorry i can't talk i want to go to an acdc concert with my friends that i haven't seen in like a month yeah. and a half so here's this guy that just did the coolest thing probably in snowboarding in Everest history and he doesn't even want to talk about it with the press he wants to go to a rock concert when he gets back to Paris and that's just kind of who he was and so I think that's what makes him just kind of an interesting character and going back to that outside magazine review is I want people to read this and obviously read the book for a lot of reasons but one of is I think outdoor people should know who Marco Sofredi is um, you should not be you should know who he is and hopefully that book accomplishes that. Well, tell us where we can find it. Yeah, so it's officially out next week. I don't know if it's May 1st or May 3rd. I'm always off. And you can pre-order now on Amazon, of course, but it should be in bookstores nationwide, Barnes & Noble, your independent local bookstores obviously support them. You can get it online from my publisher, or Amazon. Um, it's available now. I think people, I think it's arrived at some people's addresses in this last week. So even though the official release date's not till next week, week um it is popping up now in people's mailboxes so certainly online all your online retailers but it should be available nationwide in all bookstores and um i like i mentioned at the beginning too i have a book trailer coming out that's something like a, a unique thing that's it's like a movie trailer but it's a book trailer and i you get some images of marco and some footage of marco that i think helps tell his story and shows his character and i'll be able to get that on my amazon page i can share it with you if you want for your website and that'll probably start circulating next week and i think it just lends itself to people really getting to know Marco and obviously the sadness of his disappearance and the sadness of what happened with his family in the aftermath. But I think that's another little marketing thing that would get out there just to get the story of Marco Sofredi. But certainly, like I said, um, you know, yeah, nationwide should be available next week and, you know, buy it wherever you can buy books. 
All right. Well, Jeremy, I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, what a crazy story, man. And, and yeah, thanks for just being passionate about being passionate about storytelling and, and getting in touch. And um, we'll be pushing this out there and I'll let you know when. Well, no, that's great. Thanks for having me on, Mason. It's just uh, I like this medium. I like the podcast forum and radio. You get to talk and expand. I don't really have a maybe a TV face anyway, so that's OK. Um, <laughs> two everybody us. says that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly uh, I am passionate about it. I could go on and on about snowboarding and Everest, but certainly the, this book is all about Marco and his family and who he was as a person. So uh, I think your readers will like it. And I appreciate the time today. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventure sports podcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.